Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Coming to terms with no stimulus anytime soon, with a possible all-blue government, and with a virus that just won't go away. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Last week, it was Fed Chair Jay Powell and ECB President Madame Lagarde. This week, it was IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva at her annual meeting who laid out in no uncertain terms that the global economy needs help and that that help needs to come from the fiscal side. Wall Street Week contributor and senior executive editor of Bloomberg Economics, Stephanie Flanders, gives us the over and under on getting this fiscal help we need on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, I guess we should we should pause to reflect on the fact that the International Monetary Fund has not historically been a great uh, source of of fiscal stimulus and and a booster for fiscal stimulus. Um, You remember even just in the the last uh, global financial crisis after supporting Um, fiscal action to help economies for the first uh, year or two, um, they were among those who said we should, you know, was in favour of austerity in the Eurozone and elsewhere. So to have the head of the IMF saying, if anything, the danger is too little rather than too much, even as she unveiled a significant uh, rise in debt stocks and borrowing, across the world uh, was quite was quite a thing uh, to behold but of course it's it's facing uh, she's reflecting the reality which is that uh, economies are not out of the danger zone and in fact if you're certainly if you're sitting in Europe you feel like you're going back into a very risky period with you know curfews being introduced across France new tighter restrictions across large parts of the UK the impact on the economy could be quite profound so you can't turn off the support yet 
So we all are very concerned about the uptick, uh, the surge, if I can put it that way, and the number of cases of COVID-19, certainly in Europe and here in the United States, much in the United States as well. At the same time, the, the, the lethality of it seems to have gone down. Not as many people are hospitalized or dying, are they? Well, it's interesting because that was what was happening in the summer. And I think there was a certain amount of um, uh, complacency even about the rising rates towards the end of the summer because they didn't seem to be accompanied by hospitalization rates. And it's certainly true that in the U.S. particularly, we've got much better at treating. We've seen a very high profile case recently, but we've got much better at treating uh, coronavirus. Actually, across Europe, you are starting to see older people start to get the pop- get COVID again, and that is starting to fill up hospitals again. So I don't the idea that this is going to be really a much easier thing the second time around is, I think, wishful thinking, although we certainly have a better handle on how to treat it. We certainly seem to be hearing, as you say, ironically, perhaps, from the IMF, but also from the Federal Reserve, from Jay Powell, also Madame Lagarde, president of the ECB, that this is not the time to worry about the debt or deficit. When will be that time? When we know uh, that we are we have reached uh, the end of, of the recession and we can see the light in terms of a post-COVID world. I think the the challenge, and particularly in the U.S., where you are having um, real difficulty in getting a, getting further stimulus passed, is you don't want to have a policy-induced double dip in the economy, even as you're still fighting um, the pandemic. And I think the fiscal, st- the first round of fiscal stimulus all over the world, and certainly in the U.S., was remarkably efficient at filling that hole that was being blown in the economy by COVID. Uh, we we reckon that uh, more than 100% of the damage, uh, just the sheer income damage from COVID in the first wave was addressed by that massive fiscal stimulus package. But if you have nothing for this second wave, which seems now to be a risk, you can see why Jay Powell and others would be very concerned in the US and why European governments would not want to turn reverse course yet. All the economists seem to agree we need to to continue, even increase the fiscal stimulus. At the same time, are we putting off the time when there have to be other readjustments made in the economy for the long-term health of the economy? And I'm not talking about cutting back on fiscal stimulus. I'm talking about repurposing people and industries. I mean, you have a wonderful podcast called Stephanomics in which you talk about the jobs. Are we supporting jobs that maybe will go away? Yeah, if I'm allowed to boost for a moment on the Steponomics podcast, actually this week we had a wonderful piece from Spain, from Cadiz, the southwest of Spain, making addressing exactly that point, which jobs are gone forever and which actually could come back. And there's a shipbuilding industry there that clearly has not come back. Uh, and is, is workers from there have then gone on to, for example, working in airline engineering. Um, now they're or engineering for aircraft, for Airbus. Now they're uh, facing the possibility of long-term redundancy and asking themselves, is the airline business going to go the way of shipbuilding? And the honest answer is, for a lot of the economy, we don't know. Even even the changes that we think are going to be permanent, you know, people wanting to work from home or people travelling for work less. In a few years' time, will we will we be? Will we be laughing at those predictions that the world was going to change? Well, that's interesting, Stephanie, because that reads, I think, in part against some of the debate in the United States about the stimulus, about whether it should be targeted or broad-based. We hear certainly from the Trump administration it should be targeted. We should pick the industries we need to support. What you're suggesting is maybe that might be a mistake. I mean, it lapses into a form of industrial policy at some point. It's so difficult, and I sympathize with all the finance ministers around the world who are trying to to decide how to do this because the, you know, and we've seen in the US actually, that the very broad programs uh, have had a lot of issues about of, of uh, misuse of funds and 
uh, not going necessarily to quote unquote deserving parts of the economy. But the more you try and target, the more you are making those difficult decisions and maybe prejudging what the structure of the future economy is going to be. If you have a decent social safety net to begin with and a good level of trust between government and uh, citizens, I think it's easier to make these choices. And that's what we're seeing. Some countries in Europe are finding it easier than others, in part because they have pre-existing ways of dealing with these very difficult challenges. That was Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics, Stephanie Flanders. Coming up, internet companies, cryptocurrencies, pot stocks are SPACs the latest financial fad. We talk the ins and outs of SPACs with former SEC Commissioner Joe Grunfest of Stanford. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. SPACs may sound too good to be true. All of the money and none of the regulatory oversight. So we asked former SEC Commissioner Joe Grunfest of Stanford what the trade-offs really are. Well, I think there's several factors that are simultaneously coming together in the market. Uh, First, there's an appetite for risk. I don't think there's any doubt about it. When interest rates in the United States are close to zero and when the Fed has signaled that they're likely to remain close to zero for a long period of time, and you've got very significant uh, amounts of bonds trading at negative interest rates uh, internationally, uh, people in many ways are reaching for yield. They're looking for opportunities. They're looking for more attractive ways to, to put their money to work. And SPACs are a very interesting opportunity. At one level, they're an arbitrage opportunity for people trying to make a little bit of money on the side. Uh, if you can pick up 1%, 2 3% relatively risk-free in today's environment, that's a very nice trade for some people that play in the SPAC market. And then it's another way to get exposure to some early-stage uh, IPO-style returns uh, with a much more significant degree of risk for other investors at a different stage in the SPAC life cycle. Yeah, you mentioned arbitrage. I wonder if there's a regulatory arbitrage going on as well, because essentially you can have a private company, a unicorn, so, so to speak, who can go public without doing an IPO. You can avoid all that pesky regulation and all those lawyers and underwriters and things. Well, you know, it's, you don't actually avoid all the pesky regulation. You don't avoid the disclosure. You, get, you generally get the same information out there and in some ways even more information but it comes to the market on a different form. So instead of you know, technically being filed on something called an S1 and doing an IPO, what you have is a merger between the publicly traded SPAC and the privately held operating company. 
and disclosures about the operating company are made as part of that merger process. So investors in the marketplace basically get essentially identical information in a SPAC transaction as they do in a traditional IPO, although the mechanisms are quite different. Well, investors after the merger, when a publicly traded company, but investors in the SPAC originally, they don't know what they're buying. They don't even know what the company is, much less have any disclosure about the financials. Yes, sir. It's, you know, I'm waiting for, for a SPAC to come out there being named pig in a poke. I think there's so many, there's so many out there, they're running out of names. <laughs> there are an awful lot. There are probably, but, but do we lose something in the regulatory oversight or do you think it's just as good as an IPO or, or a direct listing, which are also getting quite popular right now? I don't know that I'd use the phrase just as good. Uh, instead, what I'd say, there are multiple differentiated ways of companies coming to the market now. As you properly pointed out, we've got the traditional firm commitment underwriting. We now have direct offerings. Those are, however, primarily done as secondaries. We don't yet have situations where companies themselves uh, are doing direct offerings and coming to market. Uh, and then we have these SPAC transactions where, again, you're absolutely right. When you initially buy into the SPAC, you have no idea who the merger partner is going to be. You're instead betting on the founders of the SPAC and their ability to find a good merger partner, and more importantly, or just as importantly, negotiate a price that will be appealing to the investors. Well, that's what I was wondering about, the price discovery mechanism. It's quite different. On the one hand, if you do an IPO, you go to underwriters, they tell you, they go out and sample around the country, see what investors are likely to pay for the stock, what it's like, and they come back and put a price on it. This is basically just two parties, as I understand it, the head of the SPAC and the head of the private company, they just set a price. A little more complicated than that. You're absolutely right. What you're doing is you're getting a merger, and in many situations, the operating company that merges into the SPAC in what's called the DSPAC transaction um, winds up getting a lot more money than you would in a typical IPO. The investors in the SPAC have to approve the merger. So in effect, what you've got is a little bit of a safety valve. Mm. So if the investors don't think that the merger is at a good price, they will vote it down. And in some situations, you've had to renegotiate the merger several times in order to get approval of the public SPAC holders. Uh, for the reasons you described, this is a, a very popular right now. A lot of people are doing it. It's almost an unlimited number of SPACs. At the same time, the track record thus far, at least, is not all that strong. I mean, if this were really truly a better mousetrap in the longer term, then you'd think the value of these things would be going up. It's not consistently going up as they go public. That's a hard measure. Right, because there's a lot of risk in many of these SPACs, and in situations where there's a lot of risk, what you expect to see is a lot of volatility. That's the definition of risk, and that's precisely what we're seeing. We're seeing some SPACs run up, we're seeing some SPACs not do as well, uh, we're seeing situations where SPACs go public and there are questions about the uh, integrity of the SPAC and the due diligence process that led to the transaction. But by the same token, you know, you've got the same kind of issues in many traditional IPOs as well. Who's making the most money off of these? Are they, are they the people who put together the SPACs? How do they get paid, compensated? Again, it's all over the map. Uh, there have been a number of situations where some early funders of SPACs, where the promoters of SPACs, have made a large amount of money by putting up a relatively small amount of money. Uh, and uh, here in Silicon Valley, that's been pretty remarkable. Because if you stop and if you think about Silicon Valley, you know, if you fund a company in Series A, and if the plan is to take it public, 
you're typically in today's world talking about a 10 to 12 year life cycle. So you have to be a patient investor. Um, it's not quick money out here in Silicon Valley. It's patient money, it's hard work, it's a lot of risk. Now, if you sponsor a SPAC, and if you wind up doing a good deal, you can make you know, 100x on the amount of money that you put in, and you walk away with it in less than two years. So, it, it, and that, by the way, is one of the reasons why we see so many SPACs coming to market. There's an option-like structure here, and what you've got is a lot of, you know, well-capitalized, high-net-worth individuals who say, look, I'm going to buy the equivalent of a call option. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, all right, what have I lost? A few million bucks. You mentioned Silicon Valley. How directly tied is the SPAC phenomenon to Silicon Valley and particularly tech startups? Those tend to be the unicorns we see. Well, you know, the situation is you've got SPACs that arguably specialize or signal they're going to specialize in different sectors. So you've got some SPACs that are looking at the energy sector. You've got some SPACs that are looking specifically at tech. Uh, you've got the SPACs with different themes that come to market. But your, your, your intuition is right. Um, a lot of the SPACs that are out there now want to take unicorns public. That's their plan. If you were back as a commissioner of the SEC, what would make you nervous about SPACs, if anything? Um, you know, I think the current commission has basically said there's a lot of complexity over here, and we just want to make sure that investors in the market understand the complexity. And the signal from the agency is that you want to look at the uh, economics of the promote. Uh, how much money are the founders of the SPAC making? How much are they likely to make in the deal? And it's important to recognize that those economics are evolving. That was Joe Grunfest of Stanford. Coming up, whatever happened to that stimulus we were promised? And will we miss it? Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland says we do and we will. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The stimulus package that the Congress was considering at the end of the year, um, we thought was not structured particularly well. The people who are hurting in this economy are middle income and lower income people. This is where the unemployment has been concentrated. And we think that a stimulus package to be effective on the fiscal policy side really has to target those individuals and those households. That was Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs on Wall Street Week way back in 2002. But the story really isn't all that different today. People are hurting once again, and once again, the biggest hurt is in the middle and lower income groups. We asked Democratic Senator from Maryland, Ben Cardin, whether we truly need more fiscal stimulus this time. Oh, we desperately need it. There's no question. We need, we've needed it for months. Uh, when we passed the CARES Act in March, we anticipated that COVID-19 would be a, uh, over by now and our economy would be back on track. That's certainly not the case. We needed a bill passed. The House did their work in mid-May. Uh, they have repeated that action more recently with a, a version that's closer to what uh, the numbers that the president wanted. We should have had a, a second round of COVID relief well before now. It's desperately needed for small businesses. It's needed for state and local government. It's needed for our schools. It's needed for homeowners and renters. We've got to get it done. It should have been done long before now. And it's clear to me that the president's not interested in this other than the politics on his election. And the Republicans in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, won't bring up 
a bill that would do the work. Well, let me ask you that question, because the president yesterday tweeted that, in fact, we should go big or go home when it comes to stimulus. He sent some messages, conflicting messages, but he sent some messages. He wants to have a big stimulus bill. If the president were to go forward uh, and Secretary Mnuchin work something out with Speaker of the House Pelosi, do you believe it could be gotten through the Senate with some of the Republican senators and the Democratic senators joining some of the Republicans? Yes, I think it could, but Mitch McConnell won't let that happen. Let's be clear. Mitch McConnell is not going to bring a bill to the floor of the Senate that would pass by Democratic votes without a majority of Republicans voting for it. And he doesn't have the the majority of his caucus in regards to what the president is saying. So, yes, I think the votes are there. But look at hundreds of bills that could have been enacted by now that Mitch McConnell has not brought to the floor of the United States Senate. So I think it's highly unlikely that that scenario will take place. One of the things, Senator Cardin, you know well that uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi has been saying, we need this bill in part to fight the COVID virus itself. You have an interesting position that you've taken, as I understand, with your colleague, Marco Rubio, saying, you know, it's not just U.S. we should be worried about. We should also be worried about fighting this virus around the world because it is global. We can't stop it at our borders. Exactly. Uh, The COVID uh, relief package needs to deal with the international aspects as well as domestic aspects. We still have not done our work at home, and we got to take care of our needs here in America. And we need to lead by example. And our example is not one in which the world is saying we want to follow. But then we also have to recognize that this is a global pandemic. And until it's controlled globally, we're still at risk here in America. So, yes, we have uh, made it clear that we need to include uh, international aspects to our response to this pandemic. Senator Cardin, if it's not to be done, this fiscal stimulus uh, before the election, let's talk about after the election. Uh, Do you anticipate perhaps there would be a significant stimulus bill, whether it's a President Biden or a President Trump coming in, in the lame duck session? You know, it's difficult to make a prediction. I would have thought that by now we would have passed the, the, the the next round of COVID relief. It's desperately needed. So, yes, after the elections, I am optimistic Uh, If we don't get it done before the elections, that we would recognize that relief is needed. State and local governments desperately need help. Uh, Our school systems desperately need help. Small businesses desperately need help. The airline industry needs help. And this goes on and on and on. The sooner we get it done, the better. If it's not before the elections, I would hope, regardless of the outcome in the election, we would get it done in a lame duck session. Do you anticipate that this will be a significant issue as voters go to the poll November 3rd? I think the COVID situation is first in their minds. So, yes, I think the the failure of the Trump administration to keep them safe, the failure of the Trump administration to get this pandemic under control, and the failure of the Trump administration to deal with the consequences of COVID-19 through additional relief bills will all be on the minds of our voters. That was Ben Cardin, senator from Maryland. Coming up, the usually irresistible force of central bankers comes up against the immovable object of fiscal authority. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, 
check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, we may have finally put to rest the idea of getting more fiscal stimulus before the election. As Majority Leader McConnell said he wanted to go small, President Trump said he wanted to go big. We are trying to help and we're trying to get some stimulus money, which I think is very important for certain industries, certainly the airline business. You know, people aren't exactly hopping into airplanes to travel. And Speaker of the House Pelosi said that even the president's big wasn't big enough. The major U.S. banks waded into the middle of the confusion with third quarter earnings that generally were a pleasant surprise because of trading and lending that was a bit better simply because the banks didn't have to reserve as much for people who couldn't pay what they owed. You are also seeing a disconnect between large corporations and small businesses uh, and consumers, which are struggling. But the prospects going forward were clouded by, you guessed it, the uncertain pace of recovery because of the lack of stimulus. The market struggled to figure it all out. On top of an election just over two weeks away that looks like it might go blue, and maybe first and foremost, a coronavirus coming back strong on both sides of the Atlantic. But fortunately, we have just the right people here to help the markets understand this difficult week. Bob Diamond is CEO and founding partner of Atlas Merchant Capital, and Wall Street Week contributor Afsani Beshlas is CEO and founder of the Rock Creek Group. So, Afsani, let me start with you. As I, as I said, really, we had a lot of uncertainty this week about the stimulus, about the COVID coming back on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, and about the economy overall. Why does the market, the equity market, keep going up? This is three weeks in a row now. You know, David, it's interesting because just uh, in the last few days, the equity market uh, rate of growth has kind of slowed down. I think the markets are watching uh, the stimulus plan, as you said, the uncertainties that have increased. The other side of it, though, is I think uh, there is more and more agreement in the market that it is possible that Vice President Biden may be getting elected. And People are starting to digest the fact that taxes may come later, but fiscal policy could come earlier, and that could result in serious growth. And if there is also more equitable kinds of packages uh, that the government um, does put out compared to right now when we have no agreement on a stimulus plan, that could also be very helpful for growth. So markets are starting to take some of those theories into consideration as they have gone up a little bit this week and last week. So, Bob, what do you think about it? I mean, is it sort of a hope that there's an all blue, if I can call it that, government? Or what are the government markets paying attention to? What should they be paying attention to? Well, one of the things we see in the equity markets is, you know, they call it um, the Dow because it's a certain number of, of companies that they're following and the S&P 500. And a lot of the small businesses, I mean, David, the, the truth is that 400,000 small businesses have closed since the pandemic. I don't think any of them would be publicly listed or, or in any of those indices. So in the economy, what we're seeing is we're clearly in the third stage. 
I mean, the first stage was closing the economy, and it was kind of the left side of the V. Now, the right side of the V is, is, it was equally sharp coming back up, but it started, it stopped well below the level at which the economy had been. And it's really a question now of, is it going to be even there? Is it going to continue to go up? Or is it going to potentially go down? And that's why there's so much focus right now on, on the need for more stimulus. Well, at the same time, Bob, what do you make of things like the retail sales numbers came in at the end of the week, and they were actually surprisingly strong, and also housing seems to be doing well. There are some indications, aren't there, that the economy actually is doing pretty well? Yeah, you know, consumer spending is really, really strong, and so people look at that. But if you tear that apart, um, spending on goods is up strongly. Since February, since before the pandemic, um, Consumer spending on goods is up actually 5%. It's higher than it was in February, where services are about 60% of the level that they were pre-pandemic. Now, here's the rub. Um, Two-thirds of the economy is in services, and 85% of the employment in our economy is in services. So when we look at those consumer spending numbers, we have to separate what's on goods versus what's on services, and the real impact on small businesses and employment in the services sector. I mean, we kind of all know it, but the numbers are, are very stark. So, Sonny, Bob makes a very good point about this divergence between services and goods, which I think is different from what we've seen before, isn't it? Absolutely. I think Bob is absolutely right. And this is something which is a global phenomenon, by the way. Obviously, services sector in this country um, has increased its share hugely. But even if you look at parts of Europe and in particular in Asia, the share of services have also increased on a relative basis. But that certainly is a really important factor. I would say also when we look at these um, numbers, they hide so much, as uh, Bob said about yeah. retail. We look at the unemployment numbers. They're hiding the fact that the total number of people who actually are staying unemployed is getting larger and larger. The number of uh, people who are unemployed in the lower income brackets is going up, while in the higher brackets, it's not going up as much. So that disparity that we're seeing overall in the economy is happening also inside those employment numbers. Sonny, one of the things that struck me this week was we had the IMF meetings. Uh, and we heard earlier from both Federal Reserve Governor Jay Powell and also Madame Lagarde from the Euro uh, European Central Bank that we need more fiscal service. But we actually heard from the IMF. We heard Kristalina Georgieva say, don't worry about the deficit. I, I don't remember the last time that I heard the IMF say, don't worry about a fiscal deficit. I was going to say, Bob Diamond and I have gone to many World Bank meetings, and I worked at the World Bank, so I ran a lot of those meetings. And it was really interesting because it's always been about fiscal austerity, right? Exactly. And, uh, and this is a huge, huge uh, change in direction um, that, uh, um, that the head of the IMF has declared. And also, by the way, a lot of economists are talking about. But what I would like to also highlight is that who, who can borrow, actually? She has said we should... Uh, those who can borrow should borrow and, and get their economies to be on a different growth path. And I actually quite agree with that. The problem is those countries that cannot borrow. Obviously, the IMF has some money to give out to those. But if you think about the scale of the countries that are in need and cannot borrow, that is huge. Bob, what about that? What about the companies that can't borrow? Because one of the things that Kristalina Gordieva talked about was some debt relief. Yes. And by the way, uh, for Bob, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, there's no question. I think uh, I, I saw an interview with Larry Fink, who talked about 
being bearish on the emerging economies today. I think when you look at the reaction of, of the currencies and the unemployment levels, it's, it's, uh, it's a function of how difficult it is for them to get the fiscal stimulus, 100%. At the same time, Sonny, is this an alarm bell for us that the IMF itself is asking for more lending? That suggests something about the global economy that's not very strong. Well, I think the IMF has realized that having these very, very strict austerity programs when countries were down actually did more damage. So they have learned the lesson, which is a good thing. I think the question is that if you borrow, eventually you have to pay it back. And these countries, if they borrow in U.S. dollars and their own currencies depreciate relative to the U.S. dollars, will have to even pay you know, larger amounts. And so they are going to be in more trouble down the line unless they get on a growth path that gets them out, which is sort of the way the IMF is talking right now. And the chief economist of the IMF is also talking that way. Bob, just to pull this all together, let's go back to Asani's original point. Uh, should we be encouraged by the fact that it may well be, not certain, may be that we get a President Biden, maybe even a Democratic Senate, and they certainly will borrow and they will spend a lot of money? I think business is a lot more comfortable with the prospect of a Biden presidency. Now, you know it'll be an increase in corporate taxes. He said that. But remember, corporate taxes went from 35 percent to 21 percent, and Vice President Biden is talking about 28 percent. There'll clearly be an increase in um, uh, uh, capital gains tax. But on the other hand, um, we can expect more stimulus um, in a Biden administration than, than I think we would otherwise. And I'm going to tell you, I think trade relations around the world, which have been truculent, to steal a phrase from another one of your <laughs> guests today, Larry Summers. And I think that will change. And I think yeah. the prospects for right. a boost to the economy with better right. relations and right. better trade, there's some right. positives here. The big U.S. banks reported their third quarter results this week, and it was something of a mixed picture. Trading was way up, at least for the most part, and net interest income was down, as were provisions for the loan losses. To take us through what we learned about the banks, Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital is still with us. Bob, of course, served as CEO of Barclays. So, Bob, what did you make of this picture of the banks? Well, it was a better third quarter than second quarter. And the second quarter, David, is, is uh, as you and I both know, net income for, for the banking industry was down about 70 percent year on year. Um, but I think the, the message here was we saw really a, a clarity to the difference between um, the more you were in commercial banking and taking deposits and making loans, and the more you had a more balanced business and asset management and wealth management, and particularly in the trading businesses, the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley, probably the extreme example, the better the results. So what do you do if you're a Bank of America? Because they tend to be more in the traditional commercial banking sector. Do you try to make it up on volume and cut costs? What's the strategy? Well, they certainly have a, a good sales and trading area in, you know, as a result of the Bank of America acquisition during the financial crisis. So it's probably a question of balance is that they're so big and so large in commercial banking that it probably over, overshadowed that uh, a bit. Um, you know, I think the challenge for the commercial banks is just what we were talking about earlier. 400,000 small businesses have already closed this year. Uh, the services sector, which is 85% of the employment in our economy, is really, really suffering right now. So um, are the loan loss reserves, um, which are up significantly, and for the four biggest banks, loan loss provisions are about double um, uh, in, in the first half. And the question is, are they enough and are they adequate? 
uh, I would suggest that the risks are on the downside there. Many thanks now to Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital. Always great to have him here on any subject, but to particularly when it comes to banking, which he knows so terribly well. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.